0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Less than a year after nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, as controversy was swirling around him, and his criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church, the Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was asked to present his ideas from the theses more clearly to his own order, the Augustinians. So, in the year 1518, there was the Heidelberg Disputation. This was in Heidelberg, Germany, and it was Luther presenting, in April of 1518, presenting... The ideas that were in his mind, in his theses that were shaking up the world at that point, just beginning to. The ideas that he asserted at the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518 would within two years time earn him a death sentence. He would be excommunicated from the church, hunted down by rulers, somehow he would survive and his ideas, these ideas would change the entire world. So what were those ideas? We can summarize everything he said at Heidelberg with this phrase, a theology of the cross. Luther asserted that in his day, the Roman Catholic Church, which was a dominant world power, joined together with the secular rulers of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, had given itself not to a theology of the cross, but to a theology of glory. Meaning, when it beheld through human reason things that seemed good to human reason, it thought God puts his stamp of approval on these glorious things. So the theologians of that day and just prior in medieval times, they were really more philosophers influenced by Aristotle and others and the arguments they made about salvation, not drawn from the Bible, were drawn instead from worldly philosophy. And if you think about righteousness or a right standing with God according to human reason, well, how do you think about a right standing with God from the time of your birth? You think, if I work hard enough, God will accept me. If I'm not as bad as the worst people in this world, I will be welcomed through the pearly gates of paradise. And that is what the philosophers, the theologians of glory in the Roman Catholic Church had concluded. Do what is in you what you are able to do, and God will take care of the rest and see that you get to heaven. Luther said that is a theology of glory. It appeals to what? Human ability. Do what you can do. It appeals to human wisdom. It makes sense. This is how we think about righteousness or justice, getting what you deserve. It appeals to human pride, for it sets you apart from those unsaved if you do what's in you. It appeals to everything earthly, everything natural, everything human. It is a theology of glory. And Luther said, it's false. It's not in the Bible. If you step back from the theologians of the church to the more political side of the Roman Catholic Church in that day, it had grown to a massive level of power There was a certain delight that was felt that secular rulers had to come to the Pope and kiss his toe. There was a power struggle throughout medieval times. The Middle Ages between the church, which was the Roman Catholic Church here, and secular rulers. There was a mass acquisition of wealth that led to corruption within the church. But there was gold. There was aesthetic beauty. If you went into a cathedral, you were amazed. It was appealing On a human level. And Luther said this is a theology of glory. It is the assumption that. If you do things that make sense. To human philosophy. If you do things that look beautiful to the human eye. If you do things that are outwardly splendorous. Glorious. Then. God's stamp of approval is upon what you do. If you meet earthly success. You're doing it right. A lot like how we judge things today too. But at the Heidelberg disputation. Luther turned this logic upside down, or at least acknowledged that that had happened. And he said, if you look at the world in that way as a theologian of glory, you are wrong and you're not in accord with the Bible. Here are two points from his disputation that summarize his point. He says in point 19, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. In other words, earthly success and the theologian of glory goes, I know what God's thinking there. He's approving of it. Next point, point 20. One deserves to be called a theologian, theologian of the cross. However, who comprehends the visible manifest things of God, what's God up to? who realizes what God's up to through suffering and the cross. The cross is the only looking glass that gives you a realistic picture of the world, of what God is doing in this world. If you look at life without the cross... You will think in a natural human way, a way that seems good to you. And when good things are happening in your life, you will think, God approves of me and everything is well. And when bad things rush upon you like a torrent, you will think, Why is God so angry with me? Why is he so set against me? That's the way you'll think until you move your eyes from the world, from that glory, onto the cross. And you make it your only lens for looking at all things. Why is it a theology of the cross? Because it is in the cross that At this very point is proven that God many times is most actively at work to bring about good when things are most outwardly bad. The cross is not glorious, the cross is not honorable, the cross is not beautiful, it is not, at least at the first, gilded with gold. There is nothing beautiful about the man who is upon the cross. He is disgusting. People turn their eyes away. He is covered in blood and in gore and in sweat. He smells. He is naked. He is a destroyed man crying out in agony to a father whom he says has forsaken him. If you are a theologian of glory, that is the worst thing that ever happened. End of story. But if you are a theologian of the cross... If you try to understand God and what he's doing through the lens of the cross. You realize that God's wisdom is such that he doesn't just take things that look good and make them good. He is so wise, so powerful. He takes things that look horrible and makes them serve good purposes. That's why we live by faith and we do not live by sight. Which are you? Are you a theologian of glory, drawn to what your eyes see? Believing God's goodness when things are good. Are you a theologian of the cross? Hoping against hope. Believing the promises of God when things are at their bleakest. When things are at their worst. That God will hold fast to his promise and is doing right. You can only be one or the other of those two. And my prayer for myself and for you as we look at this text, the cross. Is that God would use it to make us more firmly, more absolutely theologians of the cross looking at all things in life through that lens. So let's begin by just looking right at the cross in our text, Christ is upon it. We're in chapter 23 and we're beginning halfway through verse 34. And they, soldiers at the cross, cast lots to divide his garments And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The people are thirsty for the blood of Christ in a bad way. And now they have it. And in Luke, we see here, the only thing they do in this text is they stand and they watch. And we're going to do the same thing with them this morning. We're going to place ourselves with them watching the scene unfold before us, Christ being sacrificed. And we're going to see what they saw. But we're not all going to see the same thing, not even in this room. Some will see this story of Christ and your gaze will go as far as reason can take you. As a theologian of glory, you'll recognize the pain. You may admire the love that Christ displays. This man who suffered... But that's where your gaze will stop. But there are others who, by the grace of God, through faith, will gaze beyond where reason can take us, as theologians of the cross, and will see what God is truly up to, even in this very horrible scene. We are going to see, for those who have eyes to see, a great deal of shame, but even if I may dare to say it, the honor of the cross of Jesus Christ, you will see, if you have eyes to see, in this very grotesque scene, the power, the glory, the beauty, the honor, the dignity of the man crucified upon this cross. Only faith can see it. It is what Paul calls the foolishness of God that is wiser than men. And God must give that to us. So our purpose this morning, then, is going to be following through these few verses. They're actually rather packed with details. We'll try to address all that we can. And just for simplicity's sake, as we're looking, we're going to split it up into the things that are done to Jesus, and then the things that are said about Jesus. The summary of the whole is that Jesus is mocked, humiliated, ashamed. He's mistreated. He's mocked. Those two things, really, mistreated and mocked. But what we want to do is look at it. As theologians of glory first, look at what's actually happening. And then, with Luke's help, this theologian of the cross, gaze beyond that into what's really happening, into the honor that is behind the shame of the scene. So let's do that point by point, see if we can get through them all. So let's begin just with the things done to Jesus, the way that he's mistreated in this text. Where is the honor? Where is the shame in this? Beginning with the shame, of course. Look at the end of verse 34. It says, they, the soldiers, cast lots to divide his garments. So if we begin as theologians of glory and we're just looking at the outward scene, the first thing we see here is a great deal of shame. And why do we see shame even in that first line? They've taken Jesus' clothes. Now it may be because of Jewish sentiment that he was allowed some meager loincloth or it may not be that case. Either way, Jesus is set upon a hill near the busiest city nearby Before the eyes of all people, the crowd, the people are watching, so that everyone can join in the humiliation of this man, exposed to the eyes of onlookers. This was a faithful Jewish man, modest, with great decorum, dignity in his actions, well respected by the people, one in whom there was nothing suspect, nothing immoral at all. And now that very man is stripped of his clothes and set up upon a cross for all to gaze at. It was intended by the Romans to humiliate the person as they die. This is meant to be shame. The people are looking. That's all they do in the text. The people, they watch. That's all it takes. You know this feeling? You and I spend most of our lives trying to avoid this. Feeling of shame. The grating cruel, internal pain of being humiliated. What I'm doing here, public speaking, for many, is one of the greatest fears that you have. Because you're afraid you'll say something wrong and be ashamed. Or a common theme among nightmares many have had, you're in a public place and you're not fully clothed. You've had that dream? Why does that come to you in your dream? Because that's what you're afraid of. To be publicly exposed. Ever since... Shame first entered into the human vocabulary. This was in the Garden of Eden so many years ago. The evidence of it, the very first evidence of shame entering our world was shame of nakedness. It was Adam and Eve hiding themselves among the trees from God and sewing together fig leaves to cover the shame of their nakedness. It was not that way before. But once shame entered the picture through sin, now that shame was centered in nakedness. And they try desperately to cover it. And here Jesus has the last Adam. Absolutely opposite. When God made garments for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. He does just the opposite for his son. And takes the garments away. So many of our fears are tied to shame. Many times, you know, we don't fellowship the way we should. Because we're afraid we'll be ashamed or humiliated to introduce ourselves to someone new. Or we don't share the gospel when the opportunity arises because we're scared of that shame or whatever other disobedience we may partake of. And yet Jesus embraces that very thing and here he is exposed upon Golgotha for everyone to see. And if you're a theologian of glory, it is shame and that's the end of the story. But what if you're a theologian of the cross? What if by faith you could see beyond the mere facade of the scene? And this is what you would see. You'd look at the text again. They cast lots to divide his garments. And you would ask, why are his clothes taken in that way? It was common practice for Roman soldiers, so far as we know, those who were guarding the people who were being crucified, to receive their clothing. They're not going to need it anymore. They're dying. But why this casting of lots? Let me read you the same scene from a different part of the Bible and you'll see why. Scripture says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you know where in the Bible that is? That is in your Old Testament. That, a perfect description of what's happening in our scene, was written some 600 years before our scene ever took place. In fact, that was written before crucifixion was even a well-known common form of execution. And yet... Prophetically in Psalm 22, King David looks forward and speaks of what will happen when his successor, his descendant, the long awaited Messiah, the promised king of Israel, when he comes, this will be true of him. They divide my gar- garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus will be thinking of this psalm. He will cry out the first verse of it later on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words now, 600 years seasoned but they are fulfilled in jesus over and over and over again and if you think of the prophecy itself that was spoken it seems an unlikely one either divide his garments up among you or cast lots for them but why do both john tells us exactly why when he gives us more detail regarding what happens here he says in his account chapter 19 when the soldiers had crucified jesus They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. That fulfills the first of the Hebraic couplet, if that makes any sense. Those two lines of the prophecy from Psalm 22 they divided my garments among them. They did, exactly. Four soldiers, four garments. Also his tunic. But the tunic, here's a problem it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom can't divide it. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And John says, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That's the second part of the prophecy. Casting lots. This is an exact Fulfillment of a prophecy from 600 years prior, which was known to the Jewish mind. Psalm 22. So the theologian of glory sees the shame of Jesus' nakedness, but the theologian of the cross sees in this a confirmation of the honor and the glory of Christ. For Psalm 22 spoke of the coming Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of the world, who would fulfill all of God's salvific promises. He and he alone will fulfill this prophecy. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots What is God doing in this horrendous, shameful scene? The theologian of the cross knows. He's honoring his son. He's making it perfectly clear that this man alone pulls Excalibur from the rock. This is the chosen king for those who have eyes to see it. He doesn't look like a king, does he? There in the texts, you ever seen a king like that? Crucified and naked, exposed to shame and mocked. But this is why we have to be theologians of the cross and not of glory. Human reason sees the shame, can see no further. It is the eye of faith that pierces beyond it, that sees in Jesus, even in his shame, his honor as the king of Israel. But move on as we continue talking about the mistreatment of Jesus. The soldiers have mistreated him by taking his clothes, but they mistreat him another way in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Three times on the cross, Jesus was offered sour wine. Once at the beginning, it was offered to him, mixed with gall, in order to hopefully relieve some of the pain. He refused it. He would feel the pain to its fullest. Then, almost at the end, when he is near his death, he cries, I thirst, and they give him sour wine. But what we encounter here happens between those two. Another time that he is given sour wine. And notice the way it is in your text. The soldiers mocked him coming up and offering. Those are linked to the mocking that's taking place. It seems that here, this is not to relieve Jesus' suffering. This is a part of the mockery that's happening. As if to say, here is this great king. There he is upon his throne, the cross, and bring out the best wine only they give him of course sour wine the worst wine the common wine the soldiers would drink the low lives would drink because they're mocking him he's not really a king in their mind so this too is part of mockery and reason sees only that mockery with sour wine what does the theologian of glory see what does faith see in the very same scene well let's go back to the psalms 600 years prior Let's go to Psalm 69, and you will find these words. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Even that first line here, they didn't poison him, did they? That word for poison in the Greek into which it was translated in Jesus' day is the same as the word gall. And in Matthew's gospel, the first time Jesus has offered any wine to alleviate his pain, it is sour wine mixed with gall. Again, both of the parts of the couplet are perfectly fulfilled. The gall, the sour wine. You can't make this stuff up. This is happening exactly as it was predicted hundreds of years before. But all of the predictions are painful, are shameful, are filled with misery, but they are predictions that are fulfilled and this is what the eye of faith sees the soldiers meant this for evil they meant it as mockery but god what is god doing that's always the biggest question and in this situation among the things god is doing is he is putting his stamp of approval not upon a glorious picture there's nothing glorious here he's putting his stamp of approval upon a horrendous picture Upon something from which the Roman and the Jewish eye turns away in disgust, considers it foolishness, unworthy of consideration. And there it is before them, and God places his stamp of approval upon it. Because he, the only one who can foretell the future, he foretells this hundreds of years before. And as Jesus receives the sour, disgusting wine into his mouth, it is a confirmation. This is the king. You mock him as though he's not, but only the king will fulfill this prophecy. These are the things done to Jesus, his mistreatment, if you will. The rest of our passage has to do with the things said to or about Jesus. So we're moving from just the mistreatment the soldiers gave him into the mockery that is made of him in what is said by words. Really, there are two statements, you can see that in your text, two quotations. The first one is made by the rulers, that's the religious leadership, and then the second one is made by the soldiers themselves who are mocking him. And the two statements really have one central idea to them, and it's this, save yourself. Save yourself. And what's implied is, if you're really a savior, you'll save yourself. And if you're really a king, you'll save yourself. Do you know what speaks that way? Theologians of glory. If you're able to save yourself, you will save yourself. If you're a glorious king, you will deliver yourself from trouble. That is what a theologian of glory would say looking at the cross. And that's what they say at the foot of the cross, both of them, rulers and soldiers. Let's look one after another. More specifically at the mockery they're making of him. Starting here, verse 35. The people stood by watching, we saw, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. In other words, it just doesn't make sense, does it? If this man who saved others, meaning he healed people who were going to die, and then when people died, according to him, he raised them from the dead. He saved them. Can he not save himself? This is a mockery because their suggestion is obviously he can't. Why? What's the logic in that? Because think naturally for us. If you can save your life, you do it, right? And if this man can save his life, then he does it. If he's really a savior, if he really has the miraculous power of God Almighty within him, he should deliver himself and therefore the cross proves beyond reasonable doubt that he's not a savior. That's their charge. He's a liar. He cannot save himself. If he's a savior, prove it. Save yourself. He saved others. Save, him. save yourself. That seems reasonable. But we're not looking this morning at what seems reasonable to the eye of reason. We are looking at what is reasonable to the eye of faith. What has God revealed to us? What is God up to in this event? And it's simply this if Jesus saved himself, he could not save others. That's the reason he doesn't save himself. Really, what the rulers had said, he saved others, that's true. If they had just brought it into the present, they wouldn't have been confused. He saved others, let him save himself. If they had thought he saves others, let him save himself. They would have known he cannot save others now, presently, spiritually, if he saves himself. The wrath of God resides over mankind and this individual is offered as a substitute. We spoke of last week. Therefore, if he delivers himself he cannot save others. Here is the wrath of God like some fiery mass about to fall upon the earth and it has to fall somewhere. You cannot extinguish God's righteousness. It can fall upon mankind for their sin and rightly so, or it can fall upon a substitute. So he saves others, therefore he cannot save himself. That's what the eye of faith sees. It listens to Isaiah who hundreds of years before foretold as for his generation. Who considered, you don't think like this, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of God's people? That's what's really happening. Someone has to suffer for the other to be saved. Jesus can suffer, others can suffer, And Jesus chooses to save the others and receive the suffering himself. Human reason will never guess the gospel. It just cannot do it. You don't predict this. It sees in Jesus' supposed inability to save himself that there's just shame. He can't. It's not that he can't. It's that he won't. That's what faith sees. And therefore the cross, though shameful, is Christ's honor. It magnifies the depth of his love that he would willingly keep himself. No one places me here, he says. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I raise it back up. Jesus is honored in his death, even if it looks like shame. Savior, save yourself. He won't, so that he can be a savior. So even that charge is honor. It shows that he really is a savior. But there's another identity marker of jesus called into dispute and that is as we move on the rest of what the rulers say in verse 35 is repeated also by the soldiers afterward and by the sign above him so him as savior he's not a savior but he is and now is he a king he's not a king but he is see it in the very events and the people stood by watching, the rulers scoff. they say, he saved others, let him save himself, and here is the if. If he is the Christ, that's a king, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Thirdly, there is also an inscription over him, This is, mockingly, the king of the Jews. Blind reason expects Jesus, if he's a savior, to save himself. And it expects him, if he's a glorious king, to deliver himself from his enemies. Why aren't his people fighting? Why aren't his subjects behind him? If he is the king that he claims he is, he would be delivered. That's what's meant by those two if statements, by the rulers and soldiers. Let him save himself If he's the Christ, because to human reason, to the theologian of glory, to our natural understanding, if you're a king who can deliver yourself by power, then you will deliver yourself by power. Or, as the soldiers say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself directly to him now. And those terms from the leaders, the Christ of God, the chosen one, that's referring to this king, this long-anticipated, predicted king. King, descendant of David. If, if that's you. Where have you heard that sort of phrasing before in the Bible? Satan, in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, Jesus. And what does that always meant? It's the same as in the garden. Has God really said? It's always to cast doubt upon the reality. They now join with the devil himself and come to Jesus and say, If you're the king, would you really be on that cross right now? Pilate, theologian of glory, had added as well this mockery which was meant for Jesus and for the rulers. Pilate himself had placed that sign above his head that you see at the end of our passage. And the full reading of it was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was written in three languages, Aramaic and Greek and Latin. So that everyone who passed by, everyone, everyone, could partake of this shameful humiliation of this man. King of the Jews, quotation marks. Pilate didn't believe that. This was meant in part to humiliate the religious leadership because they came to Pilate and said, don't put that sign on his head, that's embarrassing. We're Jews, don't say that's our king. Say he said he's our king. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Kind of to gall them, to get them. But it was also meant as a mockery of Jesus. Look, what a great king. Because human reason will look at that cross and immediately recognize that's no king. That's not where kings go. Kings sit on thrones. Kings wear fancy clothes. Kings have power. Kings have subjects. Kings have gold. Kings have money. Kings have wealth. Kings have authority. Kings have a staff. They have a scepter. They have a crown not made out of thorns. That's what kings have. That's what reason sees that kings have. But the question is, What does the theologian of the cross see when you put on that lens and look at the same passage? You see honor. We go back to Psalm 22 once again. Here's the prediction I am a worm and not a man. This is what the king will say I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or we might say, if he delights in him. How could Jesus have more perfectly fulfilled every prophecy concerning him? That's an exact description of what we're reading. That's hundreds of years before. That is a prophecy that only the true king of Israel will fulfill to the letter. And therefore, when Jesus suffers, the shame of that experience is mocked. They call into question that he's a savior. They call into question that he's a king. In doing that very thing, in shaming Jesus, they Honor him. They prove beyond doubt that he and he alone is the true Messiah, the King of the Jews, everything the sign claims for him. He's, in fact, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the name that will be written on his thigh when he returns in glory on a white horse. They are proving it as they try to stamp out the embers of this man. Instead, they cause a conflagration. They prove through all time, even now, 2,000 years later, they build our faith in everything they're trying to disprove. As we see them shame this man, mock him as if he were not the king of the Jews, we therefore, because of the prophecies, because of the confirmation of God's word, believe more firmly that he is. And we honor him. It is in the shame of everything done to Jesus and everything said to Jesus that he is most honored and that our faith is built in him and him alone. Just look again at him, our Savior who is there upon the cross. Look at the crown made of thorns pierced into his brow. Look at the sign above his head. See the predicted form of suffering. See his gasping, breathing, his refusal to deliver himself. See every sign of weakness, every evidence of failure, of loss, of confusion, of pain, and of agony. Look and look again, and let me ask you once more, what do you see? Some will see there, as theologians of glory, a man lacking glory. A man frustrated in his attempt to do whatever he was trying to do and now killed under the weight of the Roman Empire. Is that what you see? A mortal, he's gone, he died, end of story? Or are you a theologian of the cross who sees in what Christ accomplished there glory? Do you see in Jesus' weakness his very power? This man who is poor. If you're a theologian of the cross, He is now your wealth. This man who was destroyed, because he was destroyed in his destruction, you are delivered, you are saved. This man who is a criminal... Because he's a criminal, you are innocent now and forever. Because he's humiliated in the eyes of all, you will be lifted up and honored into all eternity. You will judge angels because he was judged and condemned. This man who has nothing, his very garments ripped from him, he clothes you by that in the garments of his righteousness. Do you see that? Everything that makes up the shame of Jesus If you're a theologian of glory, that's it. It's shame. But if you are a believer, if you are a theologian of the cross, you see in everything that's happened to him an immense honor. Everything he's accomplished, and what you see in him, if you see that, it's yours. You get that. Along with the promise that whatever the dark thing you're going through now, and probably most of you are, if you're a theologian of glory, you have very little hope. Maybe it will turn around. Maybe not. But if you're a theologian of the cross, you know that if you're going through a dark, a miry bog, a dark place right now, God is now actively turning that for an immense good. And in the end, that will be known. Let's pray. Jesus, you're our righteousness. You're our hope. You're our wisdom. And if the world, as Paul has said, considers this wisdom to be foolishness, then we forsake the whole world. We renounce it all. doesn't matter to us. You're our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. We don't have anything else. We have you. Therefore, in a world that is as broken as your cross, a world that is full of disease... Suffering, agony, and quite confusing situations, we believe that not despite these situations, no, we are more than conquerors. It is because of these situations that we shall be glorified and enjoy you forever. It is through tribulations we are saved, even by means of them that you purify us. Lord, Teach us, I beg you, not to despise the affliction you permit in our life, but rather to embrace it, to embrace whatever sort of suffering we are granted, that we might by it be conformed to the image of our Savior. He who has suffered so much for us, I pray you teach us never to grumble against him, never to grumble against your providence, but to accept whatever you grant us and to believe as theologians of the cross. We don't have to be beautiful. We don't have to be glorious, aesthetically pleasing, rich, wealthy, healthy. We need the righteousness of God that comes to us through this man. And having that, we have all through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.